Hey everyone, it's Amanda. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to talk to you about, well, me and my experience with Clothes Horse. To say that this year has been crazy is, I mean, even saying it's the understatement of forever is an understatement, so I don't know. Hopefully after this is all over, we'll come up with a new way to describe how crazy this year was. It'll be like a new adjective that didn't exist before now. Anyway, I began this year, I mean, before the pandemic, just so depressed. Dustin, who you know is both my husband and the audio engineer around here, would drive me to work most days. And as we approached my office, I would, I would just, I would get more silent, more kind of teary eyed, just so sad. And he would have to give me a pep talk that I would get through this, that I was smart, that I was good at things, that we would figure out a new path for me, that the next year of our lives would be so much different. We had moved thousands of miles away from most of our loved ones for a job that just was not the right fit for me. I personally did not feel like I fit in. There was weird Machiavellian stuff happening with some members of the team and Overall, it was just neither challenging enough nor a match for my own values and ethics. So it just, it was all wrong, no matter how hard I tried to make it all right. And you know, I was just so done with fashion. Like, yes, I have met so many incredible, talented people along the way. I mean, you've, you've heard some of them on the show, but I've had so many issues with how the industry works the way it impacts humans and the environment and even just the internal culture of many of the places I worked, it was hard for me to reconcile because I'd felt this way for years, but I'd been forcing myself to sort of compartmentalize all of it because, you know, I had a family to take care of. And, you know, I, I grew up pretty poor. So having a career that allowed me to make my family's life comfortable meant so much to me. So, so much. Even if I didn't agree with a lot of the stuff that was going on, I mean, it changed my life and my family's life. And still, you know, I always wanted to free myself of this career in this industry, but I couldn't figure out how to do that and still pay the bills. And to be honest, I'm still not there yet, but I was afraid. Every time I saw someone else leave and start their own thing, I was so jealous. Like, how had they done it? How had they taken that leap? I guess I could have just asked, but my family is just waspy enough that I feel very uncomfortable talking to people about money and their sex lives or anything too personal, unless they volunteer at first. <laughs> if you've been following this podcast long enough, then you know that I lost my job this year. And it's been painful to say the least. You know, I was one of a tiny single digit handful of people laid off from the brand that employed me. So it felt so hurtful. Like, it was like getting dumped by someone who maybe wasn't the best boyfriend who you weren't crazy about, but still they'd rejected you. You know how that sucks. It's so, it always hurts even though you're like mad at yourself for having hurt feelings about it. Well, that's where I was especially because I had been there kind of since the beginning and I'd picked out most of the initial product assortment. I mean, it was pretty devastating and I 
you know, I felt like for my friends and family, I had to pretend that I was relieved or it was NBD, but definitely made my mental health a lot worse than it had been even before that. At the same time, it was like a huge weight had been lifted because I was no longer stuck there. Yes, my career in fashion was effectively over because when you reach my level, one layoff generally means that's it. It's the end. But Clothes Horse was born from the ashes of my career. For the first time in my life, I'm working on something that I love, something that feels meaningful to me. Through the pod, I've met so many passionate, talented people who offer their support and time because they believe in what I do. And you, the listeners, you give me your ears for several hours each week just because you like what I'm doing. Like, you don't have to listen to Clothes Horse, but you do. To say that this means so much to me, well, it's another one of those epic understatements. It's just... So huge for me. So huge. Each episode of Close Horse requires a lot of work, usually about 20 hours for each episode. There's all the pre-planning with the guests, the research, the recording, the editing. And then, of course, I also design all the social media content. I mean, I'm pretty busy. And then there are the expenses, you know, shipping microphones around, hosting fees, equipment costs. It adds up especially when my income is about 20% of what it was pre-pandemic because, you know, I'm on unemployment, which may run out at the end of this year. It's a scary, scary time. So I've decided to start a Patreon. I was trying to offer content for free as long as possible, but honestly, and you know what? I'm not ashamed to say this. I know you all know how it feels. I'm in a financial position where I could use some help. And I have to remind myself, as I remind all of you regularly, my work deserves a living wage too. It's hard. It's hard to put a price on your work. I know why you're all struggling with it too. So let's talk about the Patreon. Well, first off, and I mean this, if you can't afford to become a patron, hey, I hear you and that's okay. As I've said before, I've been broke more of my life than not. But if you love Close Horse, there are tons of other ways that won't cost you a dime that you can do to show your support by reposting our content, recommending to your friends, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All of these things are free, but they have so much value. If you do have the ability to become a patron, well, then here's some info. Okay, you ready? First off, I have to give my dear friend, Ms. Jillian Masland of Los Angeles, California, credit for coming up with the horse names for the tiers. She's one of the wittiest people I know. And fortunately, she and I are working on an upcoming episode about the psychology of shopping. So you'll get to meet her soon. The Appaloosa tier. Did you know an Appaloosa is a spotted horse? They're pretty cute. It costs $3 a month. You get a super cool don't give your money to asshole sticker designed by the one and only Dustin Travis White. You'll also get my weekly newsletter, which will start appearing in your inbox later this week. And it's where I'll share some of the other reading and brands that I think are important, but I don't always have the time to share on the podcast. I mean, I'm reading constantly and there's tons of stuff I think you would like to see too. And oh yeah, the other thing is that when you become a patron, you'll get a shout out on the podcast. 
Next is the Mustang tier, which is $6 per month. You get all the Appaloosa benefits and a special exclusive episode each month. And I'm even thinking about starting voting to choose those. So stay tuned. Also, Dustin and I worked together to design three super awesome limited edition buttons. You know, like the old timey like election buttons. And one says, don't give your money to assholes. Another says, your money is as powerful as your vote. And the last one is proud outfit repeater. You get to choose one of those. The Clydesdale tier is $12 per month, and you'll get all the pins I just mentioned, along with the Mustang and Appaloosa benefits. Now, the Pegasus is just for you small business owners, or I guess if you have a huge ego. Well, you'll hear why. Okay, so I wanted to think of an affordable way for makers and designers and small business owners to get some exposure. I mean, Helping these businesses grow is how we change the entire industry. So I'm super passionate about that. For $25 per month, in addition to all the benefits I've listed so far, you'll get a shout out on every episode, but it will be more like on NPR. You're like, okay, I don't know how much you listen to NPR, but maybe this sounds familiar to you. The World is sponsored by the MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. See, you've heard that, right? Well, you'll get a shout out just like that at the start of every episode for your business. So it'll be like, Close Horse is sponsored by your brand, and here's a little blurb about them. And once a month, I'll do a full one-minute commercial chit-chat segment about what you do, what your brand is, anything else you want me to share, and that will be a permanent part of the episode. So anybody who listens to our archives, which you know is what you do when you find a podcast you like, you listen to all of it, they'll hear that ad. So it's always there. We'll work together to write it, and I'll record it, and you'll get final approval over it, so you don't have to worry about being unhappy with it, because I'm here to help you put your best foot forward. Once again, I guess if you don't have a business and you have a huge ego, you could also sign up for this, and I'll do a one-minute segment about you, which actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, sounds like really amazing performance art, so hey, go ahead, become a Pegasus. (laughs) If you've always dreamed of being on Close Horse, or you have a topic you want to force me to cover, but you're too shy to ask me, you can pay a one-time $200 donation to be an official show pony. You'll be a guest if you want and receive all of the swag that I just talked about and basically my unending eternal gratitude. Long-term, I have big plans for the podcast, possibly a little recording tour when the world reopens writing a book, doing some mentoring and development for small business owners. I can do this with your support. You can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. I know, a shocker. And I'll also share the link in the show notes in case you didn't write that down fast enough. Once again, if you can afford to do it, yay. Like, thank you so much. If you can't, there's so many other ways to show your support. And If you don't want to do that either, well, that's totally cool and fine too, because I'm just glad to have you here listening to me talk. And thank you to everyone who already has donated to the Patreon. I can't even begin to describe how grateful and honored I am. I'll be starting to shout out the patrons and brands in the next episode, so get ready. Okay, well, 
let's get into the episode. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that was both disappointed and relieved to discover that LA wasn't at all as it appeared on Beverly Hills 90210. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, I'm so excited to share part one of three of my long and amazing conversation with the one and only Selena Sanders. I'm so grateful to now count her as one of my friends, and it's all thanks to Clothes Horse. You know, one of my favorite things about working on the pod is all of the super rad people I'm meeting on a daily basis, and Selena is one of the loveliest people I've met so far. I know you're all going to love getting to know her. Like me, Selena has had a long and tortured career in the fashion industry, and COVID has, in a weird way, given her the chance to grow her own business. And she makes the most beautiful and special upcycled clothing, like just works of art. I'll share her info in the show notes and get ready to be odd. You have to check it out. Today, Selena will be telling us about her family, her experience moving from the Philippines to the U.S. as a teenager, and her own experiences in the industry with a whole bunch more in the next few episodes. We talked for almost four hours and I don't want to edit any of it out because it's so good. It was even re-listening to it multiple times. I'm still just so happy I got to have that conversation with her. Did you know that you can send me questions and feedback? Yes, you. You can ask me just about anything via email. You can find that at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram. I'm constantly answering short little questions there. And now I officially have a post office box, so you could even send me a paper letter if you wanted to. <laughs> it might take a while. To be honest, I'm toying around with the idea of getting a voicemail line so you can leave me questions there too. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, drop me a line so I can kind of gauge if it's a good idea or not. <laughs> Anyway, listener Elena sent me a list of really great questions, and I'm going to tackle them in the upcoming episodes. So here's one of them. For small and not so small brands, what are the pros and cons of e-commerce versus wholesale versus self-owned brick and mortar stores? A small brand I follow and wear has said that they have become successful only once they switched from wholesale to fully e-commerce. Another brand I follow, Ace & Jig, has about 25 stockists while maintaining their own relatively big e-commerce presence. This year, they pulled back on stockists, and I'm wondering if it's because the stockist program is for marketing to new customers and they don't actually make money on the garments sold there. Well, I mean, I think you're already hitting the nail on the head there, Elena, without realizing it. But the answer on this one is pretty simple. It's way, way more profitable to sell stuff on your own via your own e-commerce or brick and mortar than it is to wholesale. So, well, let's unpack that a little bit. So let's say Ace and Jig is selling a dress for $200. Like $200 is the price that it will sell for on their website and in any boutiques that carry it. That's called the MSRP or the Manufacturer's Suggested Retail. But to be honest, suggested is kind of inaccurate because 
it's really more like the mandatory retail price because if boutiques try to sell it for more or less, they could get in trouble with Ace and Jig and possibly lose their right to carry the line. Well, why? Because selling it for less could undercut other retailers. I mean, you hear about this a lot with Amazon and brands, actually. And if they sold it for more than this MSRP, well, I mean, that would just be so stupid because customers can Google any style from any brand and find what the MSRP is. So no one would do that. But selling it for less has been very problematic, especially since the rise of e-commerce. So Ace and Jig sells this dress for $200 and it costs $50 to make it. So if they sell it directly on their website, then they will make $150 off the dress. Now, obviously that's not including any overhead expenses, but that's not what really matters in this conversation. Just remember that they made $150. Okay, so now let's say Ace and Jig sold that same dress to a boutique. Well, they aren't going to sell it for $200 because if if they sold it to the boutique for $200 and the boutique also sold it for $200, well, then the boutique wouldn't make any money from selling it, right? So they're going to get a wholesale cost for it. Most brands offer a 50% markup, which is known as the keystone markup. Some might give you a 55% markup because they understand that it's a little bit more profitable. And if you work for a larger retailer, you have a lot more aggressive margin targets to hit. And so that 50% can be really bad for your metrics. But with smaller brands like Ace and Jig, you can usually expect more like the Keystone markup. So like I said, it's 50%, which means the wholesale cost is 50% of the MSRP. And like we were saying before, the MSRP is $200 for this dress. That means the wholesale cost is $100. It's 50% of 200. So when the boutique sells the dress at full price, they will make $100. Okay, well, let's go back to Ace and Jig. It cost them $50 to make that dress. They just sold it to a boutique for $100, which means they made $50 off of the transaction. But if they had sold that dress directly to the customer via their website, they would have made $150. So a huge difference, three times the amount. So yes, in most cases, it's way more profitable to sell directly to the customer rather than wholesaling through a stockist. For one, wholesaling is expensive. You have to adhere to vendor manuals that have a lot of policy and rules about how you have to pack the order. You need a salesperson to handle the accounts. I mean, that's a full-time job right there, all of the correspondence with the, the accounts and dealing with payment and credit card issues, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, there are expenses associated with the logistics of running your own website and warehouse, but they're not any more than having a full-time wholesale business. And if you're making three times as much money selling directly, it's pretty easy to justify having your own website, especially now where anyone can start a store online in less than a weekend. It's just so easy and so much more profitable. On the other hand, stockists are like free marketing, which Elena mentioned in her question. They post about your brand on social media. They introduce customers to your brand. They give your brand legitimacy and cachet, and you can't put a value on that. 
especially if you're really careful about who you allow to carry your brand. When you are a buyer and you go to market trying to pick up new sort of cooler or fancier brands, is they always want to talk about the adjacencies, meaning what other brands do you carry that will sit next to their brand? Those adjacencies can really elevate a brand, especially if it's an emerging brand. Once again, you can't put a dollar value on that. I think it's really smart to do a blend of a few carefully chosen wholesale accounts like key boutiques in major cities while using your e-commerce site to sort of scoop up the customers in the rest of the country and internationally. Basically what Ace and Jig is doing. I think it's super smart. As for opening your own brick and mortar, I mean, it is so expensive because as a brand, this store will have to represent the purest essence of your brand. So you'll want to ensure that the build out, the decor, the customer service, the location, just about everything needs to convey who you want your brand to be. And that costs so much money. I mean, many brands do this just to have the marketing opportunity that a retail space offers. You see a lot of this in Manhattan, but they'll really be making their money off of e-commerce and wholesale. In most cases, and this is a crazy number, it can take 10 years, yes, 10 years or more for a retail store to become profitable. So I hope I answered your question, Elena, and everyone else please keep the questions coming. I love sharing my expertise, you know? Okay, well, anyway, let's get into my convo with Selena. Today, we have a very special guest. It's Selena Sanders, who you might recognize from Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) She's a rising star on Instagram, but she's also a really incredible designer and just a lovely person. So, Selena, why don't you just introduce yourself? Oh my God, that was such an amazing introduction. Thank you so (laughs) much. I just pulled that off the top of my head too. Like I really think I should host a talk show and do it. You totally, I could totally see a future in that and it's awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm such a fan of the pod. So yeah, a little bit about myself. I am actually... Um, living in Los Angeles right now, but um, sort of originally from here, but Mm -hmm. wasn't really born and raised here. So I was born in a country called the Philippines, which is in Southeast Asia. And I moved here when I was um, about 17 years old. So you can totally imagine how as a teenager, I already had like a high school boyfriend that I was hoping to get married to oh my <laughs> back God. then. Um, I had college plans in the Philippines. You don't attend junior high. So you're literally like 16, 17 when you attend college. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I already had plans to attend um the University of the Philippines, which was um, really known for their theater and their music program. Um, My grandparents raised me and my grandmother was a soprano and a musician and a choir conductor and a composer. And I was sort of one of those like children who got, um, you know, sent to piano lessons and dance like Mm -hmm. lessons. And she had big dreams for me about like acting and directing. And she sort of wanted me to go to study 
and major in that field, um, especially in the Philippines. We love music. I don't know if you guys have any Filipino friends, but every Filipino family has a (laughs) karaoke machine. (laughs) This is true. This is 100% true. (laughs) That is just ingrained in our systems. Like we love singing. Even Even if we're not really good singers, we still love singing. So I was sort of in this trajectory Except um, my mother, who had moved to the United States already when I was like 13, um, you know, my dad at that point was sort of on and off raising us. Unfortunately, you know, he had a drinking problem Mm -hmm. and he was also just a little bit lost, I think. um, And he couldn't really raise my sisters and and me. Um, And at that point, my mom was basically it was her turn to basically raise us. And at this point she had already remarried um, to my stepdad and they were in the process of basically trying to what they call petition um, me and my sisters to move out to the United States. And of course, when I, when I knew about that, I was like, hell yeah. I'm like, I watch MTV really religiously. <laughs> right. I, I like watch like Beverly Hills 90210 and like Melrose Place. Like these are the things that like I am just I was just so influenced by the American culture. And I had a perception of what America was that I was just like so excited to come to the United States. Well, that's good because I thought you were going to say I was so mad. And I never forgave my mom. I left my boyfriend. (laughs) Well, my boyfriend and I had at that time um, had dreams that we would meet up in America because Mm -hmm. he too had family members that like lived here. And so we had this grand plan to basically, I'm going to, I'm going to come back for you or, you know, how 17 year old romantics feel or think. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And he had dreams about me sending him boxes of like Air Jordans and like, you know, skateboards (laughs) and stuff, because we lived in this like very Northern part of the Philippines where there wasn't even a stoplight because it was such a small town. Like, And going back again to my parents, they were actually neighbors. Like what happens in the Philippines is you're such a small town that neighbors marry each other. So everybody knows each other. Everybody knows everybody's business. And everybody's called an uncle or an aunt because even if you're not really related by blood, like that's how people interact within a community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They know everything that's going on in people's lives and their businesses. So I... I, (laughs) We, you know, which <laughs> I think it's like quintessential um, small town, like really, really small town. But this was in the 90s. So you would think that it was like in the 50s. But really, we're really just behind. I mean, to the point where movies would come out, American movies would come out like three years later. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm literally watching and my most favorite movie, and I'm going off of a tangent right now, but I think your <laughs> listeners would really like appreciate this. Okay. I, my favorite movie was Coming to America. <laughs> oh, no way. 
so timely <laughs> or yes. so appropriate, I guess. <laughs> totally. And, you know, I was a big Eddie Murphy fan, but that movie was released in the United States like four years before I got to see it, you know? I mean, to be honest, this is how I see movies. I see them like three or four years after they come out. So this seems totally fine to me. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm always behind on the hot movies. <laughs> so it's 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 really just kind of an interesting, and I'll talk a little bit about me f- moving here and that what that felt like and the okay. environment, but kind of going back to my parents, and now that I'm a little bit older, and I'm very appreciative that you have me on the pod today because um, I've always wanted to go to therapy, but <laughs> have never been able to. And I just feel like this is kind of therapy because you're asking me certain questions right now as like simple as like, tell me about like where you're from or, you know, and that's such a loaded question sometimes when people, (laughs) people tell me and I'm like, do you have an hour to talk about this? (laughs) No, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I like was born in the United States, but my family life is so complicated that I dread when people ask me like where I grew up or anything about my family. Cause I'm like, well, how many hours do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like everybody has a story and I've, you know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and it's just inherent in my work because I don't have coworkers. So I like to listen Mm -hmm. to podcasts or like certain like you know, documentaries or things that I don't really have to completely pay attention to, but want to like absorb while I'm working and Mm -hmm. just being able to listen to other people's stories have been really fascinating. And it's made me rethink about my own background and my own stories. So, um, going back to that, I actually had a conversation with my mom because I was like, is it okay if I discuss this with um, people? They Other people will be listening. And she was like, yeah, I think it's fine. You know, um, part of it, I think just rethinking about your where you're from, especially if you're not from this country. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been back in a long time. Um, it just helps you kind of ground yourself and like really understand that if you're not originally from America, there's – there's something about that to why you look at the word world a certain way. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So going back to my parents, um, they were, you know, neighbors, like I said, um, my mom was got pregnant with my sister when she was only 18 and my dad was 17. Oof. Oh, I know. <laughs> That's rough. It, It really is. And um, my mom said that she fell in love with my dad because my dad was the most handsome boy in town. (laughs) And and I agree. I've seen photos of my my father and um, I only remember him, you know, from before I came to America because he actually passed away right after I moved to America. Um, And he was very young. He was only 49 years old. So makes me so sad. I know. So young. Very, very young. And um, when they got pregnant, you know, um, got married. And of course, um, my mom basically was such always a creative girl. And despite having this very conservative upbringing, my grandfather was the governor of our state and was a renowned um, civil rights lawyer. Um, So she had a very affluent kind of social status um, when she was growing up. 
And um, but at the same time, she was very creative because, again, like I said about my grandmother, who was always singing and composing and was always leading a choir group and they were very active in church. My mom was a lover of fashion through and through. Um, she, by the age of 15, my my grandparents actually left for a business um, trip. And when they came back, they found that all the curtains and linens and bedspreads were gone. <laughs> because my mom literally put together a whole collection of outfits for herself and for her siblings. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where I feel because I, for those of your listeners who may be looking me up right now, I'm an upcycler. That's what I do for a mm-hmm. living. And it's just so interesting that my mom started out her career as also somebody who had upcycled clothes. And um, after that, my my grandmother used to tell me this story. She was very upset, but she also recognized her talent. Back then in the 50s, when my mom was growing up, They didn't have a thing like ready to wear. You know, it was always made to measure. You had to go in to get your, your, you know, measurements. And then Mm -hmm. you only bought clothes that you really needed. Like in my mom's case, she used to say, you know, she needed a first communion dress or a, her birthday party dress, or she'll have maybe like one Sunday mass dress, like mm-hmm. once a year. And then, um, you know, obviously in the Philippines, it's very hot. So they were always spending times like by the lake or, you know, in the, in rivers and beaches. And she would have like a woven like bloomer and like a little like, you know, bandeau, but made mm-hmm. out of cotton, nothing like And that's what they used to swimsuits you know um not like the right not like the kind that we used here in america right with that kind Mm -hmm. of very heavy polyester fabric um so anyway my grandparents were like she has clearly she's got a talent let's connect her to our seamstress that we work with and Mm -hmm. they actually that year they did a fundraiser they did a family program where they did singing and dancing and at the end of it they did this fashion show and my mom basically did this like runway show with her siblings there's six of them you know my uncles and my my aunts and my grandparents and they all did like dancing and singing and then raised money for the church the local church wow that's so cool it's I I see pictures of it not a lot of pictures but they're all obviously in black and white but I can totally see my mom's signature designs you know, like kind of embedded within that sort of the look that she always mm-hmm. had. And so by the time my um, my mom and dad got married, um, my mom had to move in with her in-laws. And my grandmother, my, you know, my dad's mom um, was a heavy alcoholic, but she was so beautiful, Amanda. Like she she used to like draw a mole on her face but it was like it was in a different spot every day (laughs) (laughs) I love that (laughs) and because she had a drinking problem sometimes she'd put four moles oh my gosh (laughs) but she was a former beauty queen and she always wore this beautiful I can distinctly remember it was like a bubble gum 
pink robe with feathers. Oh like, my, just, stop it. I want I'm, it right now. <laughs> I mean, all the way around. And her parents were actually from Spain, like directly wow. from Spain because the Philippines is a, a Spanish colony. Mm-hmm. And she used to speak in Spanish, like fluent Spanish and just walking around with her curls and like her bourbon. That was her choice of drink. Just kind of walking around and my mom used to tell me that she had a very hard time living with her now new mother-in-law. I'm sure. I mean, that's, that's a tough act to deal with every day. Like, yeah, that's a lot. And to be like so young, she was coming back to that in my mind, thinking about how much, I mean, I'm sure you would agree how much you've changed. Yeah. Oh my God. Can you imagine being married? that young I think you would agree with me when we both think that when we were 17 we were babies like this oh and the fact could you imagine just like having a child and moving in with your mother-in-law and you're expected to be like and that's another thing too she used to tell me that she couldn't cook so which in her grand you know my grandmother would just like yell at her and basically was like you know you're you're a waste of space and like all these really bad verbal (laughs) abuses and my mom told me that she would hide the cookbook in the bathroom and she would she would like do the steps and then run to the bathroom and then read the next steps and then come back out. Oh my gosh. Because yeah. I mean, I feel like if I would have been married at that age, I would have been the same way. Like I, something I think about all the time is how, when I was that age, I didn't know that it wasn't okay for people to treat me that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I have so much sympathy for her. I mean, I know this is, was so long ago, but man, what a tough start to adult life. It, it really it's really kind of interesting because these are just like snippets and stories that I've heard throughout my childhood. But um, my mom is 72 now and uh, somebody I heard somewhere that um, this person recorded their parents and just had like an interview and basically like wanted to learn more stories. And I actually mm-hmm. I want to hopefully do that one day because I feel like my family is just so interesting that everyone has such a story to tell and I feel like the the more my mom gets older the more she's also reminiscing about her past and I really hopefully one day I'll do that too especially with COVID now like she I can't really interact with her as much as I used to and I would just love to spend that time with her you know and just like pick her brain yeah I think I love that idea. I think everybody should do that. I know. So for anybody listening, do it. It's just, I think it's such a great idea. So mm-hmm. um, so my mom basically said she didn't have a job, but wanted to contribute to the household. My dad was an only child and his parents just thought the world of him to the point where my mom used to say that they really did baby him. He was very spoiled, but also to a family that's very conservative Filipino conservative, they always just look at the woman as to some somebody who like takes care of the household, like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, I guess it's common in most like, um, like old time, sort of the way that we think about the world back in the day in the 50s, you know, that's really just a common thing that the world used to think about. So my mom to contribute, she used to finally her cooking skills were getting better. She decided to make like meal kits to basically deliver to wow. yeah, to my grandfather's um, who's my dad's dad. 
he worked for a bank and my mom would just go with her basket and bring like meal kits and sell them to like the ladies that like worked at the office. And that's how she made a living. But then also she would wear all the little clothes that she would make for herself. So Wow. Nobody was interested in the meal kits. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> was interested in the outfits <laughs> that she was wearing. So she would get orders. Like she would just come in and like, you know, take, she would have a measuring tape. They would, all the ladies would like run to the restroom and she would take their measurements. And then she got hooked up with like a local seamstress because there were always seamstresses around the neighborhood who needed work. And she would pick like the same fabrics, like linens. And she would just go to the market and buy like, curtain fabrics and bed sheets and things because again the whole idea of fabrics back in the day for um, made to order clothing is something she just didn't like she said that they were Mm -hmm. too ornate and she didn't feel like they were breathable and you know she just felt like um, some of the curtains were more like light and feeling and the hand feel was better. So that's what she Mm -hmm. preferred. And she would just have it embroidered or um, stitch or something or dyed. She used used to do these like dyeing techniques that really made these amazing colors. Um, And then basically fast track later, but she got married when she was 18. By the age of 21, she made her first million. Wow. Yes. <laughs> she opened up four stores nationwide at the age of 21. Wow. And this is just literally from her identifying a space at this local mall. It was a hallway that basically led to the restroom. And it was just unused space. And you think about it now in American malls, people use that space. Now they put stands and like stalls and stuff, right? Like Mm -hmm, if you think mm -hmm. about malls now. Yeah, the hair straighteners. Yes. Embroidered hats. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And like scrunchies or like whatever is Mm -hmm. the new lotion, the miracle lotion that people. Always the lotion. (laughs) Want to give you samples, you know. I'm always like, no, please. I look so awkward. (laughs) Or sometimes it'll just like spritz you while you're walking like (laughs) down the aisle um she told me that she identified the space and she didn't have a lot of money so she just talked to the manager and they're like who would ever want to rent that and she was like me you know (laughs) and by then both her parents that you know were still living in in our neighborhood versus in the city where my grandparents were my dad's parents my grandfather or my mom's dad was like i'll give you a loan and um wow, at the age huge. of I, I know and she's had some really great successes she did um some film like she did costumes for film um my uncle was a musician as well and he was an award-winning pianist and jazz musician so they collaborated on projects um for movies um my mom used to do nonstop fashion shows you know she was a party girl um at that (laughs) point because she had she had an entourage um my dad basically um was so interesting he would like keep all he was such a, a a fan of cars and my mom would like buy him a car every you know every season and it, it they used to tell me these like stories about just like the glamorous fashion life but by the time Um, I was born and she was entering her 30s at that point. She was basically bankrupt at that point. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Um, There's a photo of me on Instagram for my first, you know, for my first birthday. I just had my birthday. So I like posted this 
photo of me and my mom and my sister blowing out my first birthday candle off of this cake. Mm-hmm. And she I remember. Used, oh, you, you do. Uh, yeah, yeah. She used to tell me that that day she she just had a big fight with my dad and my dad wasn't there. And she was crying a lot because she was like, can't you tell my I wasn't wearing any makeup and my hair is a mess. And I'm like, no, you look fabulous, you know. <laughs> um, and she said that she was so poor. She had no money. She just had enough to buy the cake. And she uh-huh. she made me scraps, you know, from her from fabric she had for my outfit for that day. And I asked her, what happened to you? You know, and she said, your dad had a wandering eye and all I could focus on was chasing after him. Oh, man. I know. I know that life. I've been there. Yeah. And that was really heavy for me because I I get it. And I told my mom this, obviously, when I was younger, I had so much resentment for her because she was not really there when I was growing up. I was like raised by my grandparents and then partly by my dad. And because my mom left and lived in Australia by the time I was like 10, lived there for like a couple of years and then moved to the United States. Um, She would only come home like maybe once every two years. And it was always the most magical time because she would have, you know, all of the things she shopped from, you know, living in the United States or Australia. And I would just like sleep in bed with her and hug her every night and just held her tight because that was the only time I could see her. And then she would leave again. And I was always so upset that she was gone. Um, But now that I'm older and she would tell me the stories, um, I, I understand now. So basically my grandfather, after the, the last store closed and my mom was really at the bottom, you know, she, um, mm-hmm. she, she never had a drinking problem, but she actually did start to drink. She started to smoke. Um, and she was always like out and about with friends and to the point where my grandparents were like, this is not healthy. You know, you need to leave. And so they worked up a way to basically send her overseas. And then after that, you know, for some reason, there was a gap in time where I didn't really understand what happened until, you know, now that I'm here and I'm older and I asked her questions Mm -hmm. about it. You know, finally, I moved out here. And then she basically explained to me that she overstayed her visa Mm -hmm. to stay in the United States and being undocumented, there was no way to come back home. And she was extremely talented and incredibly smart. I mean, she was my grandfather's press secretary, um, basically after she lost her companies and she had to now work for my grandfather before she left. And she always gave speeches and wrote speeches for my grandfather and always attended, you know, um, political events. And she was always like in fundraisers. And she she was really a very um, influential woman in her own right in our state. But when she moved to the United States and was undocumented, the types of works that she had to accept in order to live here, she used to tell me certain things that she was just, I had to be, I had to take like this like humbling pill because she used to like couch surf. um, And then there were women that took advantage of the fact that she was undocumented. So they would basically hire her to do these jobs and not pay her, you know, but promising they would pay her and then she'd do the job. And after that, they'd be like, well, no, if you if you complain, we will report you to the, um, you know, to immigration. So, 
there were there were times where she wanted to give up, but she felt like in order to move on and to give me and my sisters a better life, my mom always said the worst thing that could happen to my children is what happened to me, and that is to marry the guy next door and feel like you need to give up your life in order to serve that man. Wow. I mean, I kind of agree, though. I, I totally I, agree. I mean, I like... <laughs> I like your mom's thinking there. <laughs> you know, it's like very, very feminist. It's absolutely. And, and I think now that I think about it, I am absolutely grateful for her mm-hmm. for doing that because, you know, not only did she inspire me to be the designer that I am now, she really has encouraged me to, to be the woman that I should be and to really push and fight for the fact that, if you have an idea, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, that your ideas and your creativity and your strength can make an impact. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to the United States, and this was in the late 90s, you know, she had already married my stepdad. And that's the reason why she was able to bring all of my siblings here. And she did it obviously the legal way. I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to meet Chan and Dorothy. Dorothy, right? Is that her last name? Dorothy. Dorothy. I'm like, I'm going to be neighbors with her. Like this is going to be, because she lives in LA and like my mom's in LA. Like totally. No, they must be neighbors. Yeah, totally. And I'm in this like one bedroom apartment. My, My mom and my stepdad obviously occupied the one bedroom and my sister and I, she put up like this makeshift like um kind of wall wall and we had just a bed like in the living room and so I walked in and I'm like with all my luggage you know I brought every single garment I could potentially bring with me because I'm like I'm moving you know I'm bringing my whole life with me so that was an eye-opener because then I realized you gotta work now Mm. like you really you really do and you know, I'm fortunate because I was younger and I still was able to attend high school out here um, and kind of get that experience with being a uh, kind of an American kid. Mm-hmm. My sisters did not. Um, my my sister was already like 20 by the time she was here. And my mm-hmm. other sister, who's 13 years older than me, was still back in the Philippines. She couldn't come out here. Right. She was married at that time. So it was just me and my sister. And my sister was like, um, I'm just going to work because I want to get out of here. I want to get my own place. I want to drive my own car. So I'm going to find a job. And she worked at the local Rite Aid um, in the neighborhood. And I was still in school. And um, by the time my, my oldest sister came to the United States, she was dating this guy. And he and now my brother-in-law. Um, and he attended Otis College of Art and Design. Mm-hmm. For those of you who may not know, it's like sister schools with Parsons um, back then. They separated, I think, in like 93 or something like that. So he attended art school and was like, Selena, you like to draw, you know, you like drawing and stuff. And your mom is a designer. Like, why don't you just attend the fashion program at Otis? You know, and this was when after I graduated college and I my mom was like, well, we don't have the money, so you should just work like your sister. And I basically was like. I don't want to work. I want to be a student my whole life because I was lazy. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know if some of you feel that way, but I feel like I felt like, oh, my God, waking up in the morning and my mom making me breakfast. I was just like, I got the life. Like, I don't care if I live in a one bedroom apartment. I'm I'm going to, you know, because I saw how hard my sister was working. I'm and, sure to afford yeah. an apartment on Rite Aid's wages. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah, it was it, it was very tough. And then, you know, fortunately, she ended up falling in love with another boy who grew up from our town. No way. <laughs> but he moved out to the United States and he was actually in the military. Oh, wow. So so and, you know, I mean, we knew him from we were kids and he had she had a huge crush on him back then, too. So in the in the end, she ended up marrying like the boy of her dreams and they now live together. And she she was one the first one to move out of the house because because they ended up getting married. Mm-hmm. So it was just me. And I was like, I'm just going to milk this free ride until as much as I can. Um, and also I sucked at every other class. Like I couldn't do math for the life of me. Um, everything else, like the sciences and stuff. And, you know, of course my mom was like, you should just be a lawyer like your grandfather because you, you know, you admired him. And I'm like, like no big deal actually i gave it a shot um there my school had like a high school level pre-law class and i sat there Mm -hmm. and i was just like i don't understand any of this like it doesn't make (laughs) it doesn't make any sense (laughs) you know because you always look at the law and you're like oh this sounds right it should be this and then your teacher's like well just because it's right doesn't mean it's the law you know, so I'm like, okay, bye, you know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but luckily, um, I basically like applied to every scholarship I could find. Um, I made sure I had a killer portfolio and I actually went to Otis on a full scholarship, like on a full ride. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I know. And, um, I was so excited and my mom at that point started going back into designing, So I don't know if people know this, but she actually in the 90s, she was the first person and I would like maybe pioneered it. I don't know. But she because she was an upcycler, she used um, lingerie and just like the slip dress as kind of her base. But because Mm -hmm. she had she used to tie dye and do all these things, she was the first person that sold it at flea markets in LA the tie-dyed slip wow and to this day everybody still wears a tie-dyed slip or like some sort of dip-dye slip and later on she you know she would layer it with like lace and tulle and you know she's dressed like some awesome people like Madonna and Vanessa Paradis I don't know if you guys know her she used to be um Johnny Depp's wife oh yeah yeah um and you know she's had she opened a store on third street before the crash in 2008 Mm -hmm. Um, and that closed down to obviously after the crash and then she finally ended up like you know kind of being able to afford to sort of send me to school meaning I got in on a full ride but I couldn't afford all the stuff that you need for fashion school like all the fabrics and all the tools and you know all the art supplies and stuff so the good thing is by then my mom was still at least making some money and I was able to not even really borrow a lot of money to go to college. And I feel really horrible from some of my 
you know, friends who may be like millennials who had to like really borrow a lot of money to go to school. I think yeah. a lot of kids yeah. still do that. So by the time uh, the recession hit in 2008, I had already had my first job as an assistant designer. I actually second job by then. I graduated in 05. So I had already been in the industry for like three years, but I could totally imagine all of the people who may have been graduating around that time in fashion and how difficult <sighs> that know. must have been, you know? So it's really interesting because after college, I obviously went to school at a place where they just sort of train you to be the next runway designer. Right. Like any uh, every other school out there. Or the next creative director or VP of design for a corporation. That's really usually the path. So they train you to almost be like an assistant designer so that you have sort of the tools to get into the workforce mm -hmm. or or start your own line, you know. Um, so for me, I didn't really have a mentor, which again is another thing that I regret very deeply because I felt as though I just kind of walked into the industry after I graduated thinking, Oh, you know, there's going to be plenty of jobs, which at that time, actually, there were some good jobs in 2005. No, I, I think. think that was it. I mean, I was working in fashion at that point, and it seemed like everyone was on an upswing. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. Because even like fast fashion as we know it now didn't mm -hmm. really exist in the same way. Like I, I blame the 2008 recession for really – giving fast fashion that like kick in the butt forward because nobody yeah. had any money. Right. But before that, yeah, clothes were a little bit more expensive. And we, I mean, I lived on the East coast. We did not have forever 21 here in 2005 that I'm aware of, you know, so mm -hmm, it just, mm -hmm. it was a different climate. And I think the fashion industry was really humming along, but then 2008, man, everything just like broke apart and nothing was ever the same again. Absolutely. It just really exposed. And of course, um, it, it really exposed the systematic issues that we go through as a world, as a global community. Mm -hmm. But it also sort of, it was the perfect storm. Because if you remember, um, and maybe you and I remember, because... Um, Back in the 90s, like in the stock boom, oh my God. I mean, everybody was like, I feel like swimming in money. Like, I just remember everybody being in the stock market. But at the same time, I also know that in the early 90s, in the Clinton era, this is when globalization started to open up. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Right? And all of the tariffs and trade kind of um, regulations were very much loosened up to the point where now there was this transition of shipping labor mm -hmm. to the um, to Asia or some of the other countries that, um, you know, did not maybe have a strong middle class. So- it really was. And then finally, like you said, after the recession and, and the push alongside with that, it's like the push for the marketing genius, you know, and evil as we know it of <laughs> consumerism. It, 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 it was the perfect storm to open the floodgates for cheap, disgusting, gross fashion. So even even by before 2005, when I was still in school, I mean, you could still go to a Charlotte LaRousse and I feel like the quality was at least still nice, you know? And I mean, obviously, you know, I was a lot younger then too, but I remember that product not being as cheap as it became, mm -hmm. like both like the retail price and the quality of it. Like, like, I feel like the relationship between the amount of money I made and the price of that clothing was a lot closer that it yes. would be a few years later. Because I think 
I, it's not like I was making that much more money. I feel like those clothes just got cheaper. Yes. What is the bottom, really? Sometimes there isn't a bottom anymore. I don't know if we're there. I mean, I've gone, not recently, but gone to Forever 21 and seen like camis for a dollar ninety. Like, that's disgusting. Is, I can't oh. even buy a coffee for a dollar ninety. You know? Oh my God. So Amanda, <laughs> I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit offline. Um, and there is, you know, um, Lee Edelcourt who wrote a anti-fashion manifesto. Um, mm-hmm. and she described that how is it possible that a Primark ball gown is at 10 oh. euros and it's mm-hmm. cheaper than a Starbucks sandwich when you think about the life cycle of making that garment from the fiber to, right, to making it, mm-hmm. to uh, cutting it, to dyeing it, to transporting it, to packing it, for it to sit in a store, powering it with all the the, the people that are working the stores. How is that just, that just seems beyond what is I can't even put a word to it like I don't know I think about this a lot obviously and I know you do too I feel as if consumers today as in people who buy clothes are so distant from what it means to make clothing that they don't even understand the work and the sheer volume of people who are involved in the fashion industry absolutely somehow a $20 a $10 whatever dress makes sense to them but when you have a conversation with someone someone about that. And you're like, okay, well, someone had to pick the cotton for it. I mean, let's mm-hmm. pretend this dress is made of right. cotton. We know it's not, right? And Or the fabric had to be made. So the, what about the workers in mm-hmm. the textile mill, right? And the people who worked in the wash house or did the dyeing. And then the people who sewed it and the people who inspected it. Mm-hmm. Don't forget the people who cut it out of the fabric and then packed it up and shipped it here. And like the warehouses and the retail workers, like they're all part of this. And when you see something for $20 and lay out everything that's involved, you're like, okay, it doesn't add up, right? And so either the fashion industry, as we know it right now, is built on this deck of cards where they're just bleeding yes. money constantly, which is probably mm-hmm. part of it, right? But also, people are not getting paid, right? That is That is what is happening, that people who make this, who sell it, who ship it, who steam it so it's not wrinkly when you buy it, those people are not getting paid a living wage. It's just impossible. It is, and I've witnessed it firsthand. Um, The thing about being, and I just celebrated, not really celebrated, more like, I don't know, maybe I should write a eulogy, you know, for my, (laughs) the, the career that died for, like, basically I was in fashion for 15 years and so many different facets of fashion. And I have traveled all over the world and have been to so many different locations um, to the point where I've literally firsthand seen it um, Mm -hmm. as far as there are, you know how certain times where you are, you may have worked for a retailer and they send you to a, a part of Asia to like meet the factory. Well, a lot of the times what they do is they clean up the factory and they only Mm -hmm. show you a portion of that factory in the nice waiting room. And people are always very, very gracious and nice. And they give you the treats, you know, and dine Mm -hmm. you. But I've, I've been in the part of it where I was embedded in the factory. I used to work for a, a company, a shoe company, and I lived in the factory for weeks at a time. So I actually, 
I mean, I've, I used to joke about this. It's not funny, but I've ridden in literally tiny boats to the point where I felt like I was going to fall and die. These tiny planes where it's the tur- and to the point where they don't really have any regulation. So you could literally put like a bag under your seat and your feet are like literally up to your face that small oh, yeah. and where you're like holding on to, you know, like just some sort of pull overhead. And like, it's, it sounds like a crazy movie from like Indiana Jones, like a scene from it. But th- these are things I've literally experienced firsthand. I have ridden on a donkey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on a donkey to get from one village to the other. Because why? Uh-huh. The factory that promised us super cheap prices because you know, our retailer is pushing us for an a, an astronomical 90% markup. But me as the middle person, as the vendor also has to make my markup. So we push the factory to give us the cheapest price and they have to make their markup. So what do they do? Mm-hmm. They have to go to a different place or a different, like, it's almost like an untouched territory where they can exploit people's labor mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. meet the price. So just put that in perspective. So one time I had written on this donkey and wagon unannounced and literally for a beaded shoe that we got an order for like 60,000 units on this like beaded sandal that was going to retail for 475. Okay. <laughs> a hand beaded Wait, sandal. Four do- yes. $4.75. Just to clarify for everyone, not $475. No. This would be a different <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a, this is a flip flop. Okay. Like a flip flop with a beaded strap, a thong flip flop, 60,000 okay, okay. units. Man, I've seen a lot of these in my life. So yeah, if if the buyer is saying, well, you know, and of course they will probably put the ticket price at like ten fifty, but that's not really the price, you guys. I mean, we know no. we know that it's not really the price they're gonna put so that you have this sort of psychological feeling like you're saving money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They'll put it at like retail price at eleven bucks, but really it's four seventy five. They demand my company an 80%, 90% markup. And then we have to make our 15, 25, 30% if we're lucky markup. Now we have to go to our factories and tell them this. And then of course they need the order. They have lines in the factory that's waiting for work. They've invested money in building a business because they think or thought that you are going to supply with orders every time this ongoing supply of orders. And a lot of, I've also sat in front of factory owners for negotiations too, you know, where we basically say, okay, this is our promise. This is what we're going to give you and award you this program for the year. And then come to think of it, it doesn't really get fulfilled, but then the factory's already like in, you know, they're already sort of like, it's too late. They've already invested in it. So what do they do? They go and use prison labor. Mm -hmm. They use Sometimes, you know, and in unfortunately in China, there's not really that much regulation as far as like prison labor labor is concerned or child labor. So to go back to my story about the sandal, I came in um, to the factory and this was another factory because we had to spread the order out. The other factory was like, we can't really take 60,000 of a beaded sandal at literally a dollar fifty a sandal like we, we can't. The materials and the construction, and don't forget, 
putting those beads on is hard mm-hmm. work. It's I mean, absolute hard work. That's insane. And then also to be packaged up and shipped off. I mean, th- this is what happens every day in the retail industry. It's probably happening even worse than ever right now because factories are probably so desperate for orders. They're like, whatever. You want to make that for 50 cents? We'll do they'll it. Take, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they'll take whatever. And I saw that happening because honestly, back then, 60000 was not right. like a big order to some of these um, you know, retailers, that's even just like a standard order. And, um, once I get the award letter, I, we literally have to fish it out this, this sandal because none of the factories own it, even if they developed Mm -hmm. it for you. So that's another thing. The development and sample cost, um, people forget is also very expensive, very expensive. Yeah. And, and despite that you fish it out and you basically see who has the lowest you know, lowest bid. Mm -hmm. And then when it goes to that, and sometimes, um, and this happened to me at one of my factories, um, some of the factories are now run by the new generation. Mm -hmm. So because their parents are now older, and a lot of them made a lot of money, and they send their kids overseas, you know, a lot of Chinese, um, you know, wealthy people come to the States or uh, to Europe, you know, to study, and then they come back to basically run the businesses of their parents. They too are very, very savvy about um, how to negotiate and how to communicate, you know, so they're a little bit more savvy that way. But at the same time, they're very hungry and they want an order because they're also very young. There was this one factory boss whose daughter was only like 19 or 20, I think, and I was negotiating with her. Oh, my God. And she basically was like, she just kind of to to prove something to her dad. She was like, I can beat that. And she didn't even do a pricing exercise or a cost exercise. And she basically said, I'm going to take the order. And I looked at my boss and I'm like, this is very uncomfortable. Like, I, I don't think this is even possible. Like, why would we even take this order? It doesn't make any sense. And of course, my boss would look at me and be like, they said they could do it. And I trust them. I've been working with them for many, many years, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to do it, but what's going to happen to get there? You know? Absolutely. So, it, it just it's really, really interesting to see that deep web, like you said, of the garment that's right at the store is just so innocently sitting there. Like we think like, oh, it just magically appeared and I magically will just buy it for ten dollars. I will wash it. It will fall apart. And then after that, I'll put it in my goodwill donation pile. I feel like I'm doing such a good job now because I'm like, you know, donating to, for a good cause. But in reality, and you've literally like washed your hands out of the just mm-hmm. the crime almost of basically the existence of this garment, right? It's this mm-hmm. legal crime, I guess, if if I would have to say it or describe it this way, because it is legal to do this. It is legal. It's really mm-hmm. interesting how we have regulations like the FDA for our food mm-hmm. and for like the medicines that we take yet. There is no, um, for things as intimate as like clothes that sit on our skin, which is the most porous organ in our body, right? Mm -hmm. We don't really have that type of regulation as far as like certain things. But of course, again, that's just me in a utopian, like in my mind, (laughs) like a wonder world. I live in a different planet anyway. So I guess, 
you know, it's normal. <laughs> it's normal to think that, but um, yeah. So wow, we kind of went through this like road, and then it, we ended up here. So I don't really exactly okay. even remember like what we were well, talking okay. about. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So you've been to the factories, and you have realized that it's not as perfect as we might be led to believe. When you were talking about that, it made me think of something I read recently, which I'd kind of always suspected, which is like the gold standard, if you will, that corporations throw out there is they're like, we do these factory inspections. So we know everything is on the up and up and everything's okay. And I'm always like, dude, Mm -mm. that doesn't work because they know Mm -mm. you're coming. Yeah. And they clean things up and they make the aisles wider and they clean the bathrooms and they give everyone clean uniforms that day. And they're like, okay, now you got to act like you're having a good time all day or you're going to lose your job. And it's, I mean, of course, why wouldn't you assume that? Mm -hmm. Of course that's what's happening. And yet this is what companies, if they're even doing inspections at all, will throw out as their proof that they're, they're ethical. It's my firsthand experience that they don't even do that. A lot of the times they will put it in the vendor contract that these are the (laughs) standards just because they want to cover their butts. But the thing about the fashion industry is there is always these sort of unwritten rules that everybody knows. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows. Um, It's true. It's true. There's always like slipping of, you know, like bribes that happen within factories. There's a lot of ways to sort of I I personally there is this big retailer that everybody knows and loves I've worked for them also before in the past and I have firsthand experience that they have you know given us um basically tried to pay us to eliminate inventory what what I mean by that is incinerate inventory oh dude so common. That's disgusting, especially when we're talking about these clothes were made of materials, right? Mm -hmm. It took a lot of energy to make them. People worked so hard and barely made any money to make them. And now we're burning them. And this happens so much, like every, every day. And it's not even like there's something wrong with the product. Yeah. Yeah. It's as easy as, oh no, the heat seal, you know, label is wrong Mm -hmm, and -hmm. that's why and we can't put it in the other on the other floor i'm sorry nobody's looking at the label you know the fact that you think that oh it's gonna mess up your your presentation at the store it's such a cute product like just try to sell it i know i know i i think that is a really good call out that there are like for our listeners and anyone who's worked in fashion you're gonna know you're gonna know this pain there is so much hemming and hawing mm-hmm. and gravity put on these stupid labels and hang tags <laughs> and literally no one cares. And yes, I too in my career have been in a situation where the TOP came in. So that's like the top of production. Mm-hmm. It should be from the actual production. It comes in and we're like, oh, that's not the label we wanted in it. And I'm sort of like, who cares? <laughs> right? Like, right? Like people are going to buy this, but there's always someone at the table who's like, no, we can't take it. And then I have to be like, hey, can you take all the labels off and put the right ones on? And that is so expensive. Oh, my Because yes. by now, it, it's here in the United States or it's on its way, right? So now 
we have to pay someone in the United States to swap out the labels. The vendor doesn't want to do that because, of course, they made pennies off of this order because we squeeze them so hard on cost that if they have to replace these labels, they're going to lose money. And so then I will go back to my boss or whomever and be like, you know, they can't really do it. I think we should just take it. Of course, someone's got bad feelings about that. And what happens is we cancel that order. They can't sell it with our labels in it and it gets destroyed. I mean, that's disgusting and that's happening every day. It is happening every day. And to tell you honestly, my last job, the one that I got laid off from very recently, that happened to us. And guess what? Everybody had to do the work. I I mean, literally to the point where they were like, Selena, can you rip out some seams? And I would like seriously sit there and rip out seams. You're literally paying me like a senior designer salary and sitting here and doing this right now. I had a creative director who was like, I wanted the tag on the right side of the blazer, not the left. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, who who cares? Do you think the customer is noticing that at all? No. Like, no one cares. Literally no one cares. And you're ruining someone's livelihood. Or waste, just wasting a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I know. I know. I feel like... In one way, I'm a great buyer because I always have really good relationships with my vendors because I see them as people and I'm like a reasonable person. But on the other side, I'm like not a good company man because I'm like, who cares? We can't <laughs> drive someone out of business because you wanted the label on the other side. Well, you know? <laughs> I'm I'm really, really happy that you say that because I mean, I've worked on both sides. I've been on the retail side and then the vendor side and sometimes the retailer, a lot of the times, actually, they know their power and they have such Mm -hmm. a hold over their vendor. They always say, oh, partner with us, quote unquote. But in reality, it's just like, just take Mm -hmm. it. Just, you know what? Give us what we want. It's not partner. Exactly. It's not. And sometimes I've worked with designers that know their power so much to the point where there was this one designer and she was actually my friend because I worked with her on the retail side before I moved to the vendor side. So I know her. And by the time I moved to the vendor side, she was just like, well, you don't have a choice. You have to do this for me because you know, you're not going to have a job if you don't do this for me. I mean, like just blatantly like tell me. And in my mind, I'm like, first of all, I'm like, I kind of trained you. (laughs) you're not in this position if it weren't for me (laughs) like but no sorry kidding aside I'm I'm just sort of like you know and as the the customer service that I always have to provide I obviously push back when I can I'm that type of vendor who will push back Mm -hmm. and basically say if some designer comes in and says oh my god this blue doesn't match this blue from this pant that another vendor is doing so I'm not going to approve this you know this you know this um approval this color approval I'm not going to approve it and it's just like and I think about that and when was the last time you went in a store and held up a top and going out there and like literally like Mickey Mousing this or not Mickey Mousing what's the word like when you're Oshkoshing it I guess <laughs> like a kid wearing a head to toe like you know like Easter outfit yeah, no one does that but I will say like coming from the the retail side that like there's always these Pantones for every delivery right and everything <laughs> right. needs to match it exactly and when I was in accessories especially it would make me laugh because I'm like 
literally no one's going to wear these gloves with that blouse. That would be insane, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's the grand vision. That was in the, um, that was in the, you know, in the, what's the word? The design, um, the mood board, you totally, know, that totally. was in the mood board. So I you do, can't. <laughs> I do think, I mean, this is like a recurring theme is that everybody is like these retailers and brands are so delusional about what matters <laughs> to their customer. And yeah. they're just so far off, so far from the mark. They're like, no, the customer is going to care that it's the exact label that we wanted and everything's going to be the same Pantone in every category. We want shoes, pants, gloves, blouses, underwear, all of it has to be the same color. No, no, no. The customer does not care. No. It is not worth canceling the order because like you said, no one's coming in there and oshkoshing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's so silly, but the amount of like wasted product, wasted time, wasted money, just the sleepless nights that come out of this oh silliness and this whole idea that this like marketing and image and like concept are so important to the customer. And while all of those things are important in certain ways, mm -hmm. that's not the stuff that really brings the customer in the door. Like I've worked places where we're, we were freaking out about these Pantones all the time and whether something got the black label or the white label, but like we never did, you know, like any community events. We never sponsored Coachella or even sent our social media team there, but we were like a retailer for young people. So like, why, mm -hmm. why weren't we doing that? Why weren't we spending our money and time there to like be cool versus making sure everything in the entry shop is the same Pantone of red? Like it's just so silly. It is absolutely silly. And you know, sometimes I used to tell this to my team, you know, because sometimes they're, they're all kind of so stressed out. I see this is like probably the industry that has had, I've seen so many people cry. Oh my jobs. God. I know. And it's so and much it's crying. Clothes. It's clothes. Maybe. Yes. Shoes. I know. I know the amount of times I've cried or felt sick. I mean, we're going to talk about mm -hmm. this later, but yes, such a silly industry. And I always, yeah, I always tell younger designers, um, we're not saving lives. This is not, this is not like surgery, you know, like no. we're not doctors. Why aren't we're, doctors crying all the time? Why, <laughs> why are we? Yes. <laughs> right? Doctors and firefighters. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, this is be number one. That's just really sort of out of touch. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I am sorry. You got to bring yourself down for a second and hello earth, right? Like yeah. you have to really think about the fact that number one, we are making cheap clothes, cheap disposable clothes. Like, come mm -hmm. on, like the fact that you're going to kill yourself and like you said, stress yourself out or like, you know, um, be sick because of this. But there is this, oh, when I'm pushing or pressuring or managing people with fear, that I will get what I want. And it's almost like a, basically a blatant disregard for everybody else's times and the resources. I mean, the fact that like, I, I remember just um, when I was, you know, uh, designing for a retailer in the um, junior market, it was always item based, not collection based. So mm -hmm. we would obviously shop all of the stores and knock everybody off and then make a line. And sometimes we would like pack these luggages for market. And it's like 
trunks after trunks after trunks after trunks of like 500 samples, one-offs, just so like one or two items could stick and like somebody would actually buy it. I mean, I've been to that booth. I know that booth. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I basically would just stop, you know, my boss and say, why can't we just do like a small collection and, you know, or maybe just have some drawings and images and then some samples Mm -hmm. and just work this way. Because obviously coming from the other side too, that's how I was trained. It's always sort of in these like illustrations and sketches beforehand and some swatches, you know, and I don't, I don't understand why we can't do it this way, but it's, this is how the vendor side of it has been trained to do is basically lugging all of these physical um, samples around because unfortunately certain buyers or designers also can't see past a sketch, which I mm-hmm. get it. But really, is that the most number one eco-friendly way to do this? Because after we're done with the 500 samples, fine, we may do a sample sale, but half of that stuff is either end-catted on a machine. So you can't really wear it because after you wash it, all mm-hmm. the print's gone, you know, or we're sometimes we're such in a rush that like the trims don't match or the buttons don't match. So you see assistant designers using markers and Sharpies to basically like cover a, <laughs> a button or a trim this just so it looks great. And then after that, you can't really use the garment because it's literally like a fake garment. And right. so we would have these rooms and warehouses full of samples of just oh. and they're all crap too as far as the fit is concerned because we're rushing them out that we don't even correct the fit we just go directly to making a sample just so we have something to show the buyers it's this constant scrambling all the time and so that's just on the sampling side there's also the fabric sampling side where we have to sample yards and yards and yards of fabrics and at the end of it it's not going to get bought or it's just basically it's, you know, it's not up to par. Oh, that one little yellow in that print, I don't like. So you need oh. to redo it again. Even if the totally. aesthetic of the fabric is beautiful the way it is, and it still fits the story, but because mm. you're so, um, you know, you're, you're basically wanting to stick so true to that mood board, you're not mm-hmm. willing to be flexible, you know? So there's all these things that also create additional wastes. Mm-hmm. And that just makes me so crazy. It does me too. And I feel like, you know, this is something we talk about a lot is this weird inflexibility and this commitment to these things that aren't even real to the customer always comes from the top. Like probably your buyer was like, yeah, the yellow's a little off. It doesn't match the Pantone from the mood board, but look how great the print is. And probably their boss was like, no, it has to be this Pantone Mm -hmm. and that's that. And so the industry is wasteful because Nobody can see the big picture. Like sometimes I wonder if you went into every corporate office around the the world and you were like, hey, let's talk about the true ramifications of our decisions. Like let's talk about all the wasted samples and wasted yardage and clothes that we sell people that go right to the landfill and on and on. Like would that change people's minds? (laughs) I, I don't know because I feel like the thing I like people say to me most often is like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Does that, but does knowing it change people's minds? 
See, that's such a good question. And I don't honestly, know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. And but yeah. it is it is worth asking, right? And I don't think that anybody's had had that series of a conversation because one of my jobs working for this huge retailer was um, you know, when I started there it was only 2006. And at that time we had been started to form like sustainability committees, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And the word was just all about surrounding about organic. It was just always about organic. If it's not, I remember (laughs) that era. if, If it's not organic, it's not sustainable yet. Nobody really would give the truth of what sustainability means, but this was 2005, so fine, whatever. People didn't know. I agree. I would have thought the same thing. I would be like, that's great. It's organic. Absolutely. But then as recent as 2019, the same retailer, which I was now a vendor of, they sent a wash specialist from their headquarters to come and speak to us about just ways to be better about not using too much water and, you know, really kind of minimizing the certain, certain dye stuff and and using a formula that's a little bit more dissolvable and Mm -hmm. all that jazz. Right. And then he came up with a bunch of formulas where you don't even really have to use water and all of this stuff. And he was basically saying, you know, this is like how much we as a company would save if we, if we use these procedures and we're all nodding our head. And then at the end of the presentation, I asked the question, I said, so is this already implemented within your company? And is this now mandated? This is just the reason why you're here, like to tell us that we need to get on board. And he said, oh no, it's not. And I'm like, oh, hold on. It's, you're not mandating it. Like you're not asking your designers to, when they write that tech pack or write that design sheet to put this new formula in, even if he had swatches like next to all the wash panels and you would not be able to tell. He gave us the one that's eco-friendly and the one that's not. And we touched it. We, we, you know, we all kind of just like had the hand feel and we couldn't even tell the difference. The look was very similar too, to the point where we felt like the customer would never know. And he told us that their designers are giving them a little bit of a pushback, their team, because they don't really want to go through overhauling their systems in place when they're writing their tech packs and they Mm -hmm. don't want to type in, they don't want to type in the new formula and they're just used to that formula already. And they don't want to go through this like new transition into greener and better ways to do Uh. it. So they're now asking us that maybe if we do it, we can lift the, the, the work off of their plate so that we could just start doing it ourselves. But it's not like mandatory. And oh my God, that's, that's infuriating, but I do think that that's probably happened time and time again. And I can say on my side in buying and, and also with my design partners, we never talk about what we're really doing. We're never like, well, if we, if we change to this fabric, it's going to be fully synthetic and it's going to be in the landfill for a thousand years. We don't mm-hmm. have that conversation. We're like, it's a dollar fifty cheaper. Now we're going to hit our margin target. Yep. You know, like I had a coworker early on in my career who said to me, like, you know, I feel really stressed out knowing that we make all this stuff that's going to end up in a landfill in a couple of years. And I was like, don't ever talk about that at work. Mm-hmm. Like, I agree. I think about it all the time, but we can't. If 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 our boss, our DMM hears us talking about that, we're never – our career's dead here. You know, like this just is not the place for that. But – Overall, we're never talking about that. It's always like hitting these price points 
making sure that we deliver all our metrics so that we can get a bonus or get promoted or still have a job, you know? And I think it is going to be a change for everyone to make things better, but the technology to do everything better does exist. It does. Listen, prices are going to have to go up a little bit to pay people a living wage and to do things more sustainably, but we're looking like at a dollar or two per garment. It's like Mm -hmm. nothing. It's Mm -hmm. nothing on our end. We would never notice it if someone didn't point it out. And that is what's infuriating is that the public as a whole has this idea that sustainable fashion should be really expensive. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be. That said, you're not going to get a tank top for $1.90 and you you never should. (laughs) You know? (laughs) it, it, It is going to be such an undertaking to undo the tremendous and horrific damage that we basically sort of trained the consumer to behave in a way, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it can be done because we have seen it done. You know, there are a lot of discussions like, and fine, maybe some of these Brands like Nike, for example, have a lot of money to invest in innovation and sustainability. But I do think that the consumer now is starting to get a little bit more um, a peak. And thanks to the pod like (laughs) yours, Mm -hmm. there is this kind of unveiling of this curtain. And just like there's this it's, it's almost like a circus show and you get to see what's happening really behind that circus. And when you see how appalling it is, you kind of are just like, dude, like, I don't want to be an accessory to the crime. Right, right. And I see this because I have um, a 19-year-old niece, you know, and of course you having a daughter who's also around the same age. I always ask her questions about how she's buying and she is aware she is aware to the point where she's only thrifting now too, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, it's happening. And I think it it just, it takes a lot of courage and it's going to be, it's going to take some time to do it, but a company will not be sustainable. And we've seen it happen already. All of these retailers we knew and we thought we're going to outlive any sort of recession or anything they're all closing left and right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see that it's already happening. Fine, it may be a judgment, like poor management. It could be. It could be a bunch of other things, like you know, they just they're just not trendy enough anymore. Whatever, blah 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 blah. But I think a big portion of that too, and we have to give credit to our customers, is the customer is now getting savvier by the day, and because of social media, they are now understanding more and more about what the products they're consuming come from or where they come from and what it takes to make basically make it, mm-hmm. I think. And maybe I'm just being very optimistic, but that's kind of how I am now seeing it. And I, it's me with my business now. It's kind of a testament of that a little bit, even if it's just such a small portion in comparison to maybe a behemoth brand. Mm-hmm. But I am already having interactions with people and I feel like the movement is here. And it's and it's going to grow, I think. And hopefully it does. I think so too. And when we look at these brands that have already just fallen apart or about to during COVID, mm-hmm. these are brands that for years were making major profit off of selling us 
future garbage clothes, right? That Mm -hmm. we were only going to wear a few times. They weren't paying their workers. They were making money hand over fist, and yet they have fallen apart and no longer exist. So, hey, it looks like that's not a model that actually works, you know, (laughs) right? So maybe it is time to take the industry in a different direction. And I'm starting to see that. Of course, none of the big players have gotten on board there, and I think they're just like so stuck in their ways that they're like dinosaurs, you know, Mm -hmm. because I do – I. I know that we live in this bubble of people who care about sustainability and and hate fast fashion, but I still see so much of this all over Instagram that people yeah. are, are waking up. And like you said, my daughter will only wear thrift store clothes too or things she bought used on Depop. She is mm-hmm. like, that's fast fashion. I don't want it. And I know I wasn't thinking that way when I was that age. I was Absolutely. like, give me all the clothes. I want them. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the days when we literally had a different like – outfit every day oh totally totally okay that was part one of three of my conversation with selena and i can't wait for you to hear the rest of it Don't forget to check out Selena's work on Instagram where you'll find her at Selena underscore Sanders. And that's S-E-L-I-N-A underscore Sanders, like Steve Sanders from 902.0. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Please tell a friend, a coworker, a frenemy, someone you don't know that you pass on the street someone you think is cute on Tinder, whatever. Let's get more people to stop giving money to assholes. I swear with every day that passes, I become more and more committed to it. (laughs) I hope you are too. Thanks to all of you who have shared our content, given us a shout out on Instagram. It feels so good every time that happens. It means so much to me. Knowing that you're listening, that you're learning, that you like what I'm doing, It makes me so unbelievably happy and it makes me motivated to do even more work. So thank you. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? Drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. If you can't get enough of podcasts, then check out my other show, The Department. I co-host it with my friend Kim and We talk about trends, taste, obsessions, weird things we think are funny. We're working on an episode about candy, all the important issues. So check it out. I will have a link in the show notes. And thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Guess what, guys? We did it. We moved. And somehow we're still married. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.